A reading from the New Testament, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when God is, when, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, for Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has, give, has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you tonight. We humble ourselves before your word, the bread of life, double-edged sword, and we ask that you would not only inform our hearts and minds, but that you would transform us into the likeness of Christ, that we would hear your voice, that you would breathe life into our hearts as your word is declared, and that you would give us faith to receive. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight, we continue in our series in Colossians as we look at the gospel and its implications for us in our everyday life. And I think Paul, as he is addressing not only the city of Colossae, but basically in all of his epistles, he wants the readers, his audience, to understand that theology cannot be disconnected from our everyday life. So often we devote so much of our time and attention to dissecting, to parsing, to pick up on the nuances of the things that Paul is trying to communicate to us, and we ought to do that and do that well. But if that's the extent to which we carefully listen to and heed the word, I think Paul would say, you missed it. 
Because the point is not only to learn more, but is to become more. In fact, we are not simply asked to become like Christ, but it is our primary calling. Have you considered this? That every time we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that we would be the very agents by which that kingdom would come. Of course, we can't do that by ourselves, but God does that through his people, you and I. And so it is absolutely important for us then to allow these words to really shape our hearts, our schedules, our life, so on and so forth. So with that in mind, we turn now our attention to Colossians 3. Anyone watch the movie The Shawshank Redemption? Yes, it is the best, right? Right? I mean, do I need to say more? It is, it is the best. I mean, it's up there with the usual suspects as clearly the best films of, I don't know, last millennial, I don't, right? And I make it a point to do my devotional on Shawshank Redemption at least once a year because it's so rich to unpack everything that's there. It's just so good. Red, played by Morgan Freeman, tells a story of Andy Dufresne's escape from Shawshank Prison. And one of the characters in that movie, Brooks, this old librarian, really caught my attention because really his story is my story. It's our story. Here's what I mean. After many decades in Shawshank, Brooks became, as Red says, institutionalized. And so when he was up for parole and he was going to leave prison, that thought scared him. So he actually attempted to murder someone so he could actually stay home. But his friends talk him out of it, and he understands that that would be a grave mistake. And so he accepts and leaves the home he has known for decades. When prison life is all you know, life as a freed man is confusing because you don't understand the scope of your freedom. How free are you really? But not only that, it's cumbersome. It's hard to manage freedom. For Brooks, the struggle is real. The world out there is not the world he remembers. And so even out there, as he's struggling to make sense of this new life, he contemplates breaking his parole and go back. Spoiler alert. Look, if you haven't seen this movie, it's like 30 years old, okay? Or 20 years old. You can't complain, okay? I'm sorry. You you just can't. After struggling to adjust to life outside the prison, he instead takes his own life. The Bible tells us that we have been freed from the bondage of sin. And it has opened the door for us to live into not only a new identity, but new life in Christ. But often, often that is a very, very, very messy process, is it not? Often we feel the tension of being caught in between these two realities that we've been set free and one day we will be completely free. But in the meantime, in between the two major events in redemption, we find ourselves confused, often wanting to go back and not knowing how to manage 
this new free life we have. And I was, as I was watching Brooks' life in the film, it begged the question, at least for me, can I really change? Can we really change? Can people really change? Can I really put away my old self, take off the grave clothes, if you will, and embrace my new identity, my new life, new calling in Christ? The false teachers in Colossae actually thought we could. They certainly thought so. But they went about it in all the wrong ways. If you listened last week as Andrew preached from Colossians 2, these false teachers came up with a bunch of tradition and, and practices. And basically they said, look, if you really want to change, don't eat, don't touch, don't smell, don't taste. It sounds spiritual, but it's actually superficial and superstitious. And Paul comes around and says, no, that's not how you change. Yes, we are to change because something has happened. We can no longer look back and deny the resurrection. And we can no longer look ahead and basically ignore the kingdom that is to come. Something has happened, but you don't change simply by not eating, not drinking, not touching. Rather, he says... We got to put on Christ. How? That sounds really spiritual too, but how do you begin to put on Christ? And Paul says, Well, let me explain. Before you can put Christ on, you got to first take off sin. So we begin there with our first point. We must put off sin. In verse 5, he says, Put to death. He does not mince words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is not a one-time transaction that happens when we receive Christ by faith, but it's an ongoing, lifelong process, which the theologians would call sanctification. The Puritan John Owen famously said, do mortify your sin, because if you're not killing sin, it will be killing you. And in order for us to put sin to death, we must first understand what sin really is. Because if you misdiagnose sin, you're going to mistreat it. A few weeks ago, Daniel, my youngest, and it's always Daniel, right? You sense the theme. It's always Daniel, right? Daniel was playing on monkey bars and he got tired, so he did the only logical thing. He let go and he broke his wrist and elbow. And he came home, and my wife brought him, and there he was in so much pain, couldn't move his arm, he was just in tears. My wife, in her maternal instinct, said, I think we need to go to the hospital. And I'm like, he's fine, just give him some Advil, put some ice on it, and you know, he's four years old. Tomorrow he'll be fine. Misdiagnosis leads to mistreatment. The moral of the story is don't come to me for medical advice. <laughs> but often we misdiagnose sin. We think sin is simply not doing the good that we ought to or doing the bad that we shouldn't. But Paul says sin is a lot more than just missing the mark or overstepping moral boundaries. In other words, sin is much more than what we think. Sin, he says in verse 7, is a way of life. 
He says, you once lived in them. But not only that, in verse 5, he says, it's the very disposition, the inclination of your heart. It is bent in that direction. Speaks of evil desires that we harbor, manifest. Not only that, he says in verse 9 that it's baked into our identity. It's part of who we are. It's in the very fabric of my being. That's why he says, put off the old self. And then interestingly, Paul adds this one in verse 5. He says, sin, on top of all this, is idolatry. Verse 5 reads as if covetousness and only covetousness is idolatry. But in fact, Paul is trying to say that all sin is idolatry. Obviously, Paul is not talking about a wooden statue or golden figure, but anything that promises fulfillment and deliverance from our broken state. And so often as students, we look at the messiness of our life and we turn to our grades and we say, grade, save me, deliver me from this C-plus average life. And for those of us who are now in the working field, we say, we turn to our career, career, money, status, save me. We often turn to physical beauty and we say, save me. We look for that trophy spouse and we say, save me. And we look to our kids and we say, save me. We look to a perfect, clean, orderly house and we say, save me. You see, all of these things can easily become idols to which we bow before as we commit our heart, resource, time, and energy in hope that somehow it will save us, that it would deliver us, that it would quiet our restless hearts. If we understand sin as a way of life, the very disposition of our heart, part of our identity and even idolatry, we will see why behavior modification and moral restraint cannot kill sin. Because you are then applying a Band-Aid to cancer. So how do we put sin to death? I love what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, we always choose according to the strongest motive or desire at the time. And agreeing with that thought, Thomas Chalmers He writes, for that very reason, idols cannot be uprooted. They can only be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. Do you hear what these two authors are saying? Because sin is much more than just behavior and it's something that is deeply lodged in our hearts. In fact, it is so enticing, so powerful because of the promise it holds before us that in order for us to overcome sin, we can't simply, by willpower and spiritual discipline, uproot it from our hearts. You need something more beautiful, more attractive, more powerful than these idols. 
Because the more you rely on yourself, your discipline, your spirituality, your resolve, it's only going to get messier. Remember back in January, we used to do this thing, and we do it every year, called New Year Resolution? Like, how far does that go? You guys even remember your New Year Resolution? I know some of you are like, I do, actually. (laughs) That's not my point, okay? (laughs) We need something that is far more attractive, beautiful, and more satisfying than money, status, grades, marriage. Perfect children. You know how I stopped Daniel from his temper tantrums? When he goes crazy because he doesn't get to watch his shows, because his sisters, because they're older, they hold on to the remote control and they replay their same TV show for the millionth time in the Park family. You know how I stop him from going crazy? I offer him something better something more attractive, something more satisfying, McDonald's. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but the moment I offer McDonald's, the world is a happy place again. (laughs) Everything is just right, because he knows that more than the food itself, there's a toy that awaits him at the end. (laughs) I don't know why I do this to him. You might be thinking, you are the worst parent in the world. I may be. I may be. (laughs) In order to put sin to death, let me say this, church. We need a palpable, life-giving, joy-filled encounters with Christ. If Jesus is something that resides only in your head, a set of theological propositions, or some, someone you loved at some point in your past history. But if he's not the object of your affection, your treasure, your love, your Lord, then there is no way you can overcome sin. And in order for us to keep Christ as who he is, we have to encounter, we have to build into our daily and weekly schedules these spiritual touch points where we're reminded of the gospel and allow these words and truths to go deep into our hearts so that our duty becomes our joy. And how do we encounter Christ? We encounter him in his word, verse 16, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. You got to get the word in you. Not simply hear it and be like, yeah, that was all right. Or listen to Keller's Facebook updates. Be like, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. No, you got to get into the word. This week, thought about Psalm 1 the whole week. The tree that is planted by streams of water is like the person who delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. And it nourishes him. It strengthens him. It gives him life. It bears fruit. And others are fed, nourished, and strengthened by that person's life. 
And that happens when we tap into the word of God and allow it to feed us. So church, get in the word. But not only that, you got to pray. Because word alone will not do. It must be coupled with prayer. If you read Keller's book on prayer, you understand this. I remember reading through his book on prayer thinking, amen. Amen. Because word alone cannot do. We need to couple that with prayer. We need to pray over, pray through, mull over, meditate, murmur the word until it gets into our hearts. Because if you try to hold on to the word, you can only get so far. Daniel, monkey bars, okay? But if you pray, you know what happens? The word gets a hold of you. And your life changes. You got to get into the word and you got to pray over it. Because if you don't pray over the word that you are taking in, you know what happens? Your heart, remember sin, this powerful thing that's part of you, the promises that are out there that your heart gravitates toward, that's what's going to happen. Your heart is going to gravitate toward the idols. And the only way you can counter all that is by beholding Christ, who is far better. And that's what Paul talks about in Colossians 1, doesn't he? You can't stop this guy from talking about the greatness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the one who is far better than any of the false teachings and self-made religions that teach us to not eat, not drink, not touch. He says, no, Christ is far more beautiful. And take it from a man who's been there and done that. His resume, his pedigree, his education, his experience says it all. And yet, he says, in light of Christ, all of these things, in my translation, they suck. Got to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on Christ and let our hearts feast on him until we are satisfied. So we got to take off sin. Then and only then, you're ready to put on Christ. I see it with my kids regularly. When I tell Daniel to change, sometimes he refuses to take off his spandex army shorts. I don't know what, it's always Daniel, okay? And I said, no, Daniel, you, you, when I ask you to change, I'm not asking you to put on something on top of those ugly pair of shorts. I'm asking you to take them off because it is embarrassing to be seen with you in public. So take it off, take it off right now. So once you take off sin, now you're ready to put on Christ. You know the adage, practice makes perfect. And uh, when I was thinking about this part, I thought about that one time my second daughter, Hannah, uh, brought home a violin for the first time. You know, when you pick up a new instrument, it is really, really difficult and even painful for the family members. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, you know, it took everything in me to not run out of that room when she said, here, 
let me play you something. I was like, ah, no. It's like the sound of someone, you know, just clawing the chalkboard over and over and over again and looks up for a look of approval. I'm like, no, no. That was horrible. But I can't, I can't say that. So, like, yeah, that was pretty good. It's your first time, right? Yeah, you need to practice. Practice makes perfect. And I think what Paul is saying here is exactly that. Put on Christ. What does that mean? Pretend like you are Christ. Keep on putting on Christ even when you're not quite there yet. Because as you decide in small, mundane, ordinary ways to be like Christ, eventually at the end, these things, your decisions, they develop character. You really do become like Christ. And here Paul says, look, put on Christ in order that you, church, may foster a biblical community that reflects who we will be when Christ returns. And he holds before us the model of the glory that awaits us. And he says, look, practice now. Keep practicing. This is who you're becoming. And in this community, Paul says, we cannot, we cannot be divided over race, ethnicity, class, our preferences, our theological convictions even, the, not the core, the second maybe. And he says, you need to come together. Come together. Because Christ is in the community. There is no Jew, Gentile, slave master. We're one in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we put on Christ? Simply, we need to put on love. That's what he says. Verse 12, clothe yourself with compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Compassion rather than anger, kindness rather than wrath, meekness rather than malice, bearing with one another rather than slandering one another. And this is what it means to be a Christian community, to apply Christ every time we want to react out of the flesh. That we intentionally choose Christ, his attitude, his words, his character. Then and only then, Paul says in verse 15, can we experience true peace. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Elsewhere, Paul would talk about peace that resides in our hearts, but here he says, no, this is the peace that unites and protects the community, and the only way we can enjoy God's peace, God's favor, his shalom in our community as God's people is by loving one another well. I don't know if you saw this documentary called Accidental Courtesy. Anyone see this? Daryl Davis, an accomplished keyboardist who worked with the likes of Chuck Berry and Little Richard, has been on a mission to befriend people in hate groups like K-12. 
KKK. He's an African-American man. And it all started when after one concert, someone approached him and said, man, I really like your style. That was great. And in that conversation, Daryl found out that this guy who was showering him with praises and appreciating his work was a car-carrying member of KKK. And this set him on a journey to basically reach out to people who didn't know him but were out to get him. And so he would go around, look for KKK members and others who didn't like him a whole lot, and he would ask, how could you hate me when you don't even know me? And this would begin a fruitful conversation where people would lean into each other, discovering one another, their gifts, their talents, their passions, and they realize, wow, we actually have a lot more in common than we thought. And as a result, more than 200 men have left KKK. Dr. Martin Luther King was right when he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I think Jesus is reminding us that in order for us to really enjoy the peace of God, we need to love each other well. But here's the million-dollar question, which we will end with. How do I do this? How do I take off sin and put on Christ when my track record is pretty bad, really? I don't do this well. And if peace, our communal peace, hinges on me and you loving each other well, then I guess we're hopeless. No, Paul says, no, 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 no. There is hope for you. He says, this is not just a pie in the sky, but this is our calling. And God will never call us to something that we could not do. Does this mean that we need to then try harder, do more? No, apart from Christ, Killing sin and trying to put on Christ would be like doing the dishes with a dirty, greasy sponge. Okay? It doesn't clean anything. It makes it dirtier. In order for us to do this and do this well, we have to understand, embrace, and live out our identity, our new identity in Christ. Because everything hinges on this idea that we are no longer dead, but made alive in Christ. Therefore, our efforts to be like him, to love one another in this community, to embrace a broken city and the country, actually matter. That's why Paul says, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because your work in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because you have been made alive with Christ and you have been resurrected, seated at the right hand of God. And all the resource of the triune God is at your disposal. And so as God's people, as we think about what it means to really change, we need to start right here and to remember our identity that it wasn't just an improvement or an upgrade, 
but a radical transformation in our status, our standing, our being, and even our future. A true game changer. We need to start right here and call sin for what it is and daily in small ways, even though we may fail from time to time, and we all will, trust me, we all will, practice Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word of encouragement to us. Thank you that we have been made alive. And now you call us to look up, look to you for strength, for encouragement, for faithfulness. And we need it so that we, as your people, can truly transform into the moral character of Christ in order that we might love not only one another, but even this broken city and this country well. In Christ's name, amen.